Uh, hi, everyone. <laughs> um, I'm April Lin. I am one of the teachers here at Liminal. And my computer just went to sleep. That's great timing. Um, I'm really tired, y'all. Um, I So as Jeremy mentioned, we had oh, restarting, really? Um, OK. Um, we're going to do this this way. Um, so yes, we had a 29-and-a-half-hour uh, playwriting festival here over the weekend. Um, in the course of 29-and-a-half hours, a bunch of us wrote plays, which were then cast, directed, rehearsed, and performed that next night. Um, and I wrote one of those plays. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And um, give me a second while I answer my password. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, I couldn't choose a nice short password. Um, so yeah, uh, and then I had to go home and finish up this message. Uh, so this is going to be an adventure. Um, and it occurred to me on the way here that um, I can't tell if you're all having revelatory experiences or are just bored out there, but I can tell when you're laughing. Um, so I love that. Um, that. That's my favorite part of being up here. And yeah, I just had to, I have to restart all this. So cool. Um, the good news is I know this passage inside and out at this point. So while this is loading, um, I'll tell you, we have been studying the book of Mark now for a year and change. We started May 1st of last year, um, which is crazy. Um, and we still have a bunch of chapters to go. Um, but since we've been doing it for so long and we've had some breaks in between, um, I wanted to go through kind of a recap uh, where we're at in the story because this today's passage includes kind of a pivotal turn. Not kind of, it is a pivotal turn in the story um, that's going to lead us to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. So I want to make sure we don't miss the context of where that turn happens. Um, so, you should have soon, um, hopefully, my title, Eternal Value versus Earthly Value, and then the first recap slide. There it is. Um, okay, so, and I didn't save this list because that would have made way too much sense. Um, so, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Um, he stopped in the village of Bethany just outside the city. Uh, which is where he's going to stay in the evenings. Um, he has rode into the city on the back of a donkey like a king. People have thrown palm branches down at his feet. Uh, they're expecting big things from him. Um, he went to the temple and caused a big scene, turned over some tables, threw out some money changers, pissed off some people. Um, on the way there, uh, cursed a fig tree for not having figs on it. Um, and then on the way back the next day, Peter has discovered the tree has completely withered overnight. Um, not just wilted a little bit, but it's, it's dead. Um, and at that point, the authorities have challenged him and basically asked him, like, who do you think you are? Uh, not just for the turning over of the tables and throwing out of the money changers during Passover, um, when those money changers are needed to change currency between all the visitors. Um, but they're also 
mad because he's been doing really, in their eyes, blasphemous things. He's been dining with sinners. He's been welcoming unclean people like lepers into his company. He's been ignoring long-standing Jewish laws and traditions, it seems, at will. Um, he's been declaring that he has the authority of God to forgive sins. Um, and they don't like any of this one little bit, partly because probably they're jealous about all the attention he's getting. Um, part of it is, too, that they are worried about the safety of their ability to rule. Um, you know, Part of them being allowed to worship on their own terms is contingent on being able to keep the peace. Um, and if he keeps the way he's going, if Jesus does, um, there's likely to be a riot at some point, and then the Romans will come in by force, and uh, nobody wants that. So that is where we are at right now, and let me get back to my notes here and try and stay on script a little bit. Um, <laughs> oh, he has also um, predicted the destruction of the temple and the entire system, religious system. So they don't like that either. And now um, we're back to where we were. Last week, uh, Catherine talked about the tribulations and time of suffering that Jesus predicted, and she did not give us the exact time and date that Jesus will be returning. Um, but <laughs> that's where we are. So today's scripture is Mark 14, 1 through 11, um, and I am using the Christian Standard Bible version. Uh, that's the one I use at work, so I am most familiar with it. And I'll start just by reading it, and then we'll go from there. So it was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You will always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body in advance for burial. I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So um, we have talked a lot in this series about this literary technique that Mark uses called the Markin Sandwich, uh, where he takes a story... Mark's, Mark's deli. Uh, <laughs> uh, he takes a story and inserts another story right in the middle of it uh, to make a third related point. Um, so today's story is one of these passages, and I wanted to start out by just breaking it down for you a little bit. Um, so here you can see, and don't worry, I'm not expecting you to read that very tiny print on the left. Um, I just wanted you to see 
how it's broken down. So at the first part, um, that those few verses, we introduce the plot against Jesus. Um, that middle longer section is um, the Jesus, what I'm calling Jesus's anointing. That's my heading, not one that I've pulled from a Bible. Um, and as we know from our study of Mark and Sandwiches in the past, uh, the middle section is usually where Mark makes the point that's kind of the key that explains the whole passage, the third point he's trying to make. So uh, it makes sense that it would be a little bit longer, uh, although they're not always, so forget I said that. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so this middle part, uh, so the woman breaks a jar, perfume, uh, the disciples are indignant, and then Jesus makes a point and teaches them something. And then the last part relates to the first part, so A2 um, is related to the plot against Jesus again, but this time we find out that there's a twist that Judas Iscariot has joined the plot. Um, so something about the meat of the sandwich, tofu if you're vegetarian, we're going to examine this slice by slice. Okay. Um, so the first part. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival. We don't want to riot. You'll note that I've underlined a number of words and phrases in the slide and the ones that follow. Um, for now, just keep the underlines in the back of your mind. I'll talk about those soon. Uh, so Mark starts out by pointing out that we're two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. Um, Passover is one of the great annual Jewish holidays. People would have been coming from all over the region to come and worship at the temple. So the crowds are massive. There are people everywhere. And two days before the festival. Um, could have been one day the way we count it because um, according to the way of counting time at the time, um, you would have included the next day in your count. So two days would have been today and then the day that we're talking about. Um, it's not really relevant unless you're really tracking what day of the week it is when all this happens, but it's interesting to note. Um, so we've talked about how the Jewish religious leadership is pretty pissed at Jesus right now. He's been committing blasphemy. Uh, he's been welcoming unclean, outsiders into his company and declaring that God says that that's good, uh, which is completely backward from the way that they, the Pharisees teach about the kingdom of God. You need to be ritually clean. You need to follow all the laws and do the right things so that God will accept you. Um, so they want to take care of this problem and dip it in the bud. But the massive number of people entering Jerusalem is posing a real problem. Um, as we mentioned, the ability of the Jews to have the amount of freedom they do to continue to follow their own religious customs and be exempt from worshiping the Roman gods the way the rest of the Roman Empire and all their conquered peoples have to by law um, is contingent on their ability to govern themselves and keep the peace. Uh, at this point, Jesus has convinced a large number of people that he's the Messiah the one who's supposed to restore the nation of Israel, get rid of the Romans. Uh, and a lot of people believe him. A lot of people are excited following him. So that put the chief priests and the scribes in a bit of a bind. If they're not careful, 
arresting Jesus could prompt the very revolt and subsequent Roman retaliation that they have been trying to avoid. So, moving on to the part B, the middle passage. If this were a movie, you can imagine that the action would cut away from a scene of the chief priests and the scribes and move to outside the city, um, a village called Bethany, which is about a mile or two outside the city walls. While he was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She broke the jar, poured it on his head, uh, but some were expressing indignation to one another. Why is this being wasted? We could have sold this and given the money to the poor, and they began to scold her. Um, so, side note, remember, I didn't actually say this, um, but I was going to say that the point that we're talking about right now falls pretty much in the middle of this last week of Jesus's life, kind of. Um, when Mark says that it's two days before the Passover, that would put it at Thursday, Wednesday, Wednesday. Um, however, this story here also appears in one of the other Gospels, in John's Gospel, um, before Jesus has even entered Jerusalem. Um, now, it's entirely possible that there are two different stories, that there were two different women who broke perfume bottles and poured them over Jesus. In John, it says Mary poured it on his feet and wiped it with his hair. This one, it's on his head. This one, she's not named. So they might be different. But if they're the same story, uh, that seems to pose a problem, right? That this story is happening on Wednesday, that one happened on Friday. Um, but notice... Mark doesn't necessarily care about telling the story in a chronological order. What he's more interested in is pairing stories to tell a point. Um, so it's entirely possible that this story is a... He's looking back. Um, so it doesn't matter, <laughs> uh, is the point. Um, so he's uh, making some theological points here. So now this is where my underlines come in. Uh, the previous two verses, the focus was on the religious insiders, the chief priests and the scribes. Now Mark is shifting the focus to a place and a people who are outsiders. They're literally outside the city, um, tiny village, the home of a man who I, he identifies as a leper, um, who would have been a social outcast, unclean by ceremonial standards. Um, now it's likely that the man is currently a former leper, because if he were still infected with skin disease, he, pro he would be an outcast and people would be complaining about him having a social gathering at his house at all. Um, but Mark points out, uses the phrase, the leper, to just emphasize, like, these are not, this isn't the insider, these are the outsiders. Um, Mark is establishing a theme here, um, a parallel between those two. And then, to make matters worse, while Jesus is sharing this meal with the men, a woman shows up. Um, that's already, <laughs> thank you, uh, that's already socially taboo at the time, uh, and Mark doesn't even give her a name, uh, which just stresses that she is, by the culture's standards, nobody of importance. Um, then she does something that's really strange. She takes a very expensive jar um, and breaks it open. And she doesn't just break it. Um, you know, a 
just the next scene after this, we're going to be looking at Jesus's Last Supper, where he breaks bread and pours out wine. Um, and the word he uses for break there is different than the word he's using here, even though they're translated the same. This word um, implies destroying. Like, she completely smashes the jar. It's not usable anymore. So she's taken an expensive jar of perfume, which is worth a year's wages, um, and has rendered it completely unusable. Um, Her tone indicates finality. So I'm calling this part of the story Jesus' anointing, for convenience, Um, but maybe a better heading would be the disciples get it wrong again because their immediate response is to be indignant. They claim that the reason for their indignation is the perfume has been wasted. It should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. Um, And on the surface, this sounds really reasonable, right? I mean, Jesus has been talking about caring for the poor um, and the least of these And the disciples are showing off, like, yeah, we've been listening to you, teacher. The poor are important. Why didn't we sell this and give this money to them? Um, But let's rewind to another story where the disciples also became indignant. Same word. Um, To set the scene, this is while they're on the road to Jerusalem, uh, right before Jesus' triumphal entry. Everyone in the company is feeling kind of nervous. They don't know what's going to happen Um, they are expecting Jesus to march in and conquer the Romans, lead a revolt, and fix everything. And he is frankly and honestly telling them, yo, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me and kill me. Um, But they are clearly not listening. So here is the next passage, um, which I have titled, again, this is my title, this is not in a Bible, James and John want special treatment. (laughs) James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Mm. When the ten disciples heard this, the other, the other ten of the party, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, clearly, James and John and the other disciples aren't getting the picture at this point still. Uh, seems to me that Jesus was pretty clear about the whole going to be killed thing. Uh, but all they can focus on is their own status. They want the best seats next to him when he comes to power in the new kingdom that they're envisioning. And the other disciples seem to want a piece of the pie too, because Jesus has to sit them all down and remind them that none of this works the way they think it does. 
They need to learn to set aside their agendas and their plans for glory and power and fame and status and whatever else they think is going to happen. If they want to be great, they need to learn to be servants or even slaves, just like Jesus is planning on doing. So let's look back at today's story. Once again, the disciples are indignant because someone has done something they don't approve of. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. Um, Some translations say a beautiful thing for me. Jesus' words here indicate that their indignation is inappropriate. We don't know exactly whether they were genuinely concerned for the poor or if they were just using that as an excuse. Given that not too long ago they were arguing over who should be given places of honor next to Jesus and the poor track record they have for understanding what Jesus is teaching them, I think it's more likely that they were just using the poor as a pretense. They were trying to maybe get a pat on the head from Jesus for remembering that they're supposed to care about the poor. Expecting him to say, great job, guys. You remembered what I taught you. Uh, But that's not what Jesus does here. He says, you always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we might be tempted to get confused here. Does Jesus care or not care about the poor? Why isn't he agreeing with his disciples? It's because he's trying to get them to see something bigger. He's trying to get them to shift their perspective. They're in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Their Lord, their Savior, their Master, their Teacher. Uh, Some awful stuff that he has told them about is about to go down. He's told them all about it. They've already acknowledged that he's the Messiah. They've seen him do amazing things in the name of God. Several of them saw him transfigured, glowing on a mountaintop, talking to Moses and Elijah. Excuse me. Um, By complaining about this woman's gift, they're implying that Jesus isn't worth the honor that she's bestowing on him. Um, Not to mention that they've insulted and demeaned her and her gift. And let's talk about that perfume, too. Um, 300 denarii. A year's wages is a lot of money for a woman at that time to have. Uh, she probably wasn't able to purchase this on her own. Um, James Edward, the common James Edwards, the commentator we're using, implies that this was probably a family heirloom. So, not only is it expensive monetarily, but this is a highly sentimental gift that she is destroying to honor Jesus with. She's not being wasteful. She's being intentionally sacrificial in giving such a valuable gift in honor of her Lord. And as a result of this woman's sacrifice, Jesus says that what she has done will be remembered whenever the good news is proclaimed in the world. In a sense, the high honor that the disciples were just arguing over not too long ago is being given not to Jesus' inside circle, but to a woman, somebody very low in the normally accepted social hierarchy. Um, And now, this brings us to the original theme of the plot to kill Jesus. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad, they being the chief priests, 
and promised to give him money. So he, Judas, started looking for a good opportunity to betray him, Jesus. So Mark, in, uh, yeah, Mark introduced a twist now. One of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of his most intimate companions, has secretly defected and teamed up with the chief priests. And for what? For money. We go from a scene where the disciples and Jesus don't see eye to eye about how they should determine the, world, the value of material objects to a scene where one of those disciples makes a very clear stand about what he thinks Jesus' life is worth, a sum of money. And this is the moment where the story takes a turn. Mark is crystal clear on this. Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and death originate from the actions of one of his most trusted inner companions, an insider who should have been one of the people that was closest to God, closest to understanding everything. Um, so I'm cheating here a little bit. I really like the way that James Edwards summed up the points that Mark is making. Um, I am going to make additional points, but we're going to start with his summary. So he says that the, cool, uh, the defection from Jesus begins with Jesus's plot into which Mark inserts the story of a woman who anoints Jesus's body for burial. This is a classic Mark and sandwich in which Mark succeeds in making an all important third point without uttering a word. As in each sandwich technique, the middle story provides the key to understanding the whole. The bracketing of the devotion of the woman, who, may, who remains an unnamed outsider, by the betrayal plot of an intimate insider, creates an acid contrast, um, or as he puts it in a different uh, publication, he says, a bitter irony, which I like. Um, a bitter irony between faith and treachery. The costly ungent of the woman is an exemplary sacrifice of faith whereas the plot of Judas to betray his master for a sum of money is a sacrifice of faith in the opposite and worst sense of the term. So to review, Mark has set up some clear contrasts here in order to make a statement of irony. He has... Uh, next slide. Thanks. Um, he set up this theme of insiders versus outsiders. The insiders, the people who are supposed to be the closest to God, the scribes, the chief priests, as well as the people who are literally closest to the Son of God right now, and part of his inner circle, they are all missing the point. A woman with no given name and no status, who's hanging out in the house of a leper, is the one who truly understands the value of sacrifice. And with this insider-outsider theme, Mark is able to show us two possible responses to Jesus, devotion and betrayal. And make no mistake, Jesus, Judas, not Jesus, Judas, is simply the first to defect. His act of premeditated betrayal is the worst, but we see that even being physically with Jesus for three years, part of his inside circle, doesn't guarantee faithfulness because all of his disciples will turn away from him when the going gets tough and they fear for their lives in just a few short days. And a third pairing of opposites that Mark shows us has to do with value. The woman's gift indicated the value of sacrifice, and even if she didn't know that Jesus would be dead in just a few days, Jesus connects her pouring out of perfume to the idea of anointing for burial, connecting her gift to the idea of suffering. This idea that true greatness comes in setting aside one's own agenda when necessary and serving others in whatever means necessary. On the other hand, we see the disciples and the priests and the scribes continuing to focus on matters of money and social status and comfort. So... I have been thinking a lot about eternal life lately. 
Uh, I can't tell you what prompted it exactly, but I started wondering at one point. Whenever Jesus talked about eternal life, he uses that phrase a lot um, in all the Gospels, were the people of his time really thinking of living forever? Is that what they understood by the term eternal life? Uh, That's a big focus for us in the church in America, right? The church has put a lot of emphasis on the idea of living forever with God. Jesus defeated death so that we wouldn't have to die. Um, And that aspect of eternal life is definitely in scripture, the resurrection of the dead. Um, But I think the danger with that viewpoint, at least we can spend all our time thinking that following Jesus is a matter of preparing for the afterlife. And I think in this passage and many other passages, Jesus is focusing on eternal life, yes, but not in the sense of life that continues forever. Rather, Jesus is making points related to life that is focused on things of eternal value, or to use more churchy language, life lived in light of the kingdom of God. So last week, if you were here, Andrew led us in a contemplative service that was a vigil for the climate change crisis that we're facing. Uh, I think I can safely say that a large part of the reason this crisis has been growing closer and closer is our short-sightedness as humans, both individually and as a collective people. Even when we know that there's a bigger picture to focus on, our tendency is to narrow our vision down to what's right in front of us. So, for instance, we've known about the hole in the ozone since the 80s. As early as 1896, that's very different, 1896 um, was when the first scientist published an article discussing the effect of increasing carbon dioxide um, and what that could do to our atmosphere. We've had plenty of time to start making some changes, um, and we have, but we haven't been making them quickly enough. We also have a collection of garbage uh, floating in the Pacific Ocean, largely made of non-biodegradable materials like plastic, Uh, called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, um, which maybe some of you have heard of. It currently covers an area of 1.6 million square kilometers, which is roughly the size of twice the size of Texas, or three times the size of France. Um, That is a mind-blowing statistic to me that I can't wrap my mind around. Um, I did a little bit of research on this, and it's not a solid mass of plastic. What it is, is an area, um, there's currents that happen that suck it all together into a similar area. And in places you might not even know it's there from the surface, but the sun is breaking down plastics into microplastics, which is making the water cloudy. Animals are eating it. It's getting into our food source. It's also blocking the sun, um, threatening the growth of algae and plankton, uh, which are at the bottom of the food chain. If you remember biology, All the other animals eat that, and the whole ecosystem is being threatened, uh, which is bad news. Um, This is a very large problem. Um, But still, I am struggling to reduce my reliance on single-use plastic, the exact kind of plastic that ends up in this great garbage patch. I've got to have my takeout pokey, my pre-made Winko sandwiches, my bagged lettuce mixes, I've been trying to make small changes a bit at a time, but um, I've got a long way to go. And it's really, really easy for me to justify my actions to myself in the name of convenience and self-care and comfort and whatnot. 
Um, these are just a few examples that are on my mind lately. And my purpose here is not to point fingers, it's not to shame anybody, maybe to shame myself a little bit, but none of you. Um, the point, and Mark's point, is that focusing on eternal matters is really hard for us. It's a human problem, it's not just a disciple's problem, it's not just a chief priest's problem. It's easy to point fingers at them because we have the whole story in front of us. But throughout human history, we've struggled with this. We focus on the wrong things. We focus on matters of limited importance, and we miss the things that are truly important. So I'd like to leave us with these reflection questions. How are we spending our time here on Earth? Where's our focus? Are we focused on earthly concerns or eternal concerns? Are we spending our energy being concerned with the things that Jesus taught us to be concerned with? Or are we falling into the same old patterns of focusing on self, on comfort, on social status, on acclaim, on material wealth, on safety, on things that just don't last? At the point I finished writing this, it was uh, 12.45 in the morning, and I decided that uh, it was time to wrap up. So I don't have a clever word to end any of this, um, and decided that this was a good place to stop. So I'm going to wrap us up in a quick prayer and then we'll be done. Jesus, God, Father, eternal God, thank you, for, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for loving us, even though thousands and thousands of years of history have not taught us any better. We still are focusing on the wrong things. We want to focus on you, but we are so caught up in the things that this body wants, that this world tells us we should want, um, money, power, status, to have the best seats at the table, to not be uncomfortable, to not deal with revolution and the change of the status quo. I pray that you would, just as we go through our week, as we go through our life, that you would help us learn, help us to make those changes, help us to see the eternal values of your kingdom. Um, and thank you for showing grace to us as we take one step forward and two steps back. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>